You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. You are listening to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's show, I'm going to teach you how to make and keep your first million dollars via junior mining stocks. As I set forth a new paradigm that I've articulated to best accomplish this, in my opinion. In this episode, you're going to learn how to think like a junior mining insider. You're going to learn the quickest way to uncover potential mining 10 baggers. I'm going to discuss why the three I's are better than the nine P's. We'll delve more into that. And you're going to learn how to make and keep your first million dollar gain. It's possible. And if you say, I don't have a lot of money now, well, I'll tell you in advance that the first step is to hustle. Find ways to generate more income. Apply yourself to learning how this sector works, what to look for in junior mining investments, and then be courageous at the right time when the best opportunities are presented to you and you can see those life-changing gains. That's, that's the formula. And if you're not willing to work hard to earn the capital you need to then deploy into the right opportunities, then that first million may evade you. But if this is something that you're willing to set forth, both in your efforts to earn and then your learning to apply and leverage that learning in this sector, this could be something that could work in your favor. I've developed what I call the three eyes, and these three eyes were developed for two people. The first is my young 12-year-old son who has shown both interest in and aptitude in investing and in finance. He's read through the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books, and every time I'm discussing finance or investing, he has an open ear with uh, great questions. So this articulation is a way for him to begin to view junior mining investments. And uh, so it's simplified, but it's not easy (laughs) to be successful at this. But this paradigm I'm going to set forth is simple for him to understand and apply. And it's also useful for listeners who I've received multiple emails over the last few months, people asking me for input on their portfolios, portfolio review. I don't offer any of that. I've never asked listeners for money in the the eight, nine years that I've done this. And I I don't want to. I don't write a newsletter. Uh, I let you know what I invest in. It's a sponsor-based show. But for those listeners that email me, it's better than just to be told an opinion it's better to to learn a paradigm that you can then begin to apply. And even if you don't like the paradigm, you can critique, critique the paradigm. What I'm going to lay out for you here, it's like a skeleton, but you got to add flesh to it. And you add flesh to it via your experience, listening to interviews, calling management, interviewing management yourself, going to conference, rubbing shoulders with people in the sector, developing a network listening to professionals, see if they're right or wrong, having conversations with people that have been successful in this sector, getting burned yourself, being successful, and then doing an honest, humble critique of why you were successful. All of these things is going to add flesh to this skeleton. I'm going to give you a grid, these three eyes, but then you got to fill in the grid. And so you, you can take this and it can be a paradigm that you can begin to apply to potential junior mining investments, but you still have to do the work and it's going to take years 
for you to really get good at this. I was told up front that it'll take you 10 years before you actually know what you're doing in this sector. I want to point out up front that this is speculative what we're talking about. We are not Biff from Back to the Future. The future results of our speculations are uncertain. If you recall back to the Back to the Future movies, and I'm assuming that you've watched them with Michael J. Fox, in one of them, an older Biff grabs the Gray's Sports Almanac with the complete sports statistics from 1950 to 2000. Then he goes back in time, and he's talking to a younger Biff in an old 1950s car. And he's trying to convince him, saying, listen, this sports almanac I have in my hand, it is worth millions of dollars if you just follow this and place your bets according to the results that are in this, you'll be successful. Well, the younger Biff, who wasn't very intelligent, didn't believe him. And then on the radio, there is the ending of a sports game. So older Biff looks in the sports almanac. He says the end score is going to be this. A few seconds later, the announcer announces the end score of the game that was in question. Younger Biff believes him. So then as the the movies play out, you see subsequently that the younger Biff became very wealthy because he had the results of all the sports games via this sports almanac in advance. So he knew the end result when he placed his bet, which really wasn't a bet because he knew the end result. You and I are placing bets, hopefully educated bets, hopefully intelligent speculations but even when you think you got a good setup and even when you think you you got it to where you're going to make a ton of money, it can work out to where things still go wrong. So we're doing the best we can as you apply this approach to junior mining stock investing. It doesn't mean you're going to be 100% sex, successful, but we're trying to set ourselves up to have probability in our favor. That's what we're talking about here. I'm going to go over my sad process and the three I's. SAD, S-A-D. I'm currently in my ninth year as a junior mining investor. I've looked at hundreds of junior mining investments. I've talked to CEOs over Zoom, in person, at booths, at conferences, uh, phone calls. Because of the show, I've, I get a lot of people reaching out to me. I've talked extensively with investors and entrepreneurs in this sector who have made millions of dollars via junior resource stocks. I've observed how and what move mining stock share prices. And so what I'm going to share with you is the paradigm I've come up with, the skeleton, to use my previous articulation, and the flesh that I put on that skeleton based on my own effort, insight, experience, and wisdom that I've learned from others. I've turned five figures into six figures. And then as I progressed, I've turned multiple six figures into multiple seven figures via junior mining stocks, had losses along the way. But at this point, my gains, my wins far exceed my losses because you have to know when to bet big. And that's part of what we're talking about here. I'm more prone to have fewer companies in my portfolio and place more meaningful bets on fewer companies. Others, even my friends, don't believe in that approach. So Critique me for what it's worth. If that's not your style, if that's not what you're comfortable with, don't do it. Use what I'm sharing with you today to critique your own approach. Maybe you want to incorporate some things I say. Maybe you want to incorporate nothing of what I say. Or maybe you say, I like this paradigm. 
and I'm going to move forward with it. And you can critique it over the years, but I'm going to give you some perhaps not new ideas because other people have said, I'm sure a lot of what I'm going to say. However, the, the, the paradigm that I'm going to lay forth, it is a new articulation. And what I'm going to share is more applicable to sub $1 million market cap companies and even much smaller than that. I invest in a lot of sub 20 million market cap companies that I hope grow to a hundred million. I invested in a $8 million market cap that grew to over 300 million market cap. Now there's dilution along the way with share issuances and such. I invested in a 20 million market cap that went over 300 million market cap. There was a lot of dilution, but in both of those cases, at one point I was up 10x on, and, and in one of them 12x. And I, I did a significant initial investment that returned six figures in one and seven figures in another. So what I'm sharing with you again is what I've done. The SAD process, SIFT, Analyze, Deploy, S-A-D, SIFT, Analyze, Deploy. You want to sift through the masses of companies because there's a ton of them out there. I was considering, I haven't done one-on-one meetings in like four years since uh, the issue of uh, the crisis of 2020. I was thinking about going to a conference again and doing one-on-ones. I signed up. I went through about the 40 or so companies that were listed, spent a couple hours doing that. And I came to the conclusion, you know, I'm not interested in any of these right now. So I don't even know if I'm going to follow through on the invitation to go. But I'm bringing that up to say that you have to develop a good sifter. You want to get to your nose quickly. You want to filter through the masses. And then after you filter through the masses with your sifter, then you want to go more in depth. Don't go in depth on a company if it has if you hasn't passed through that initial sifter that you develop and create. Don't waste your time going doing a deep dive on a company that's not even worth it. But after you sift, then you go into more detailed analysis. Then you de- deploy your cash according to the opportunity. The better opportunity where I feel I have like more of a competitive advantage, I'm going to deploy more cash. So you have to develop your sifter. And the quickest way to a junior mining 10-bagger is to develop an efficient and focused sifter. You're looking for a potential outperformer. When I bet big, I want at least a 3x within three years, three to 5x. But I want to have that potential three or 5x, also have the potential for a 10x. If I'm going to bet big on a small cap, it's got to give me at least a potential 3x return. I want an outperformer with limited downside, ideally. And in my opinion, what I'll term the triple I sifter is a better starting filter than a valuation spreadsheet for juniors. There is a role of putting together valuation spreadsheets. You know, we we each have a different bias or strength or way in which we like to sift through and analyze. Some people just like they live in an Excel sheet and that has its place. However, the more early stage something is, and the more small the market cap is, in terms of your initial filter, in my opinion, the valuation spreadsheet plays less of a role. 
when the bigger the company gets and you're it's a $300 million market cap now and you're comparing this development company to that development company or this producer to that producer and you're looking at earnings per share and NPV and NAV and cost per ounce in the ground spent and uh, enterprise value per ounce in the ground or pound in the ground if it's copper, not gold. That has its place, those comparative metrics. However, I don't think that's the best place to start for the sifting. And thus, I'm laying out what I'll turn the triple I sifter. There is no flawless junior mining investment. Let's point that out. You want to avoid the fatal flaws and you want to make sure the strengths outweigh the flaws. You're going to apply your own unique individual judgment knowing that there are no flawless junior mining investments. Sometimes I've invested in a company and then somebody will email me and say, but did you know about this, this, and this? And I'm like, yep, I knew about all those things. Um, thank you for that information. And I determined that the opportunity, if the company is successful, is good enough and that there's enough strengths to hopefully overcompensate for those weaknesses so that I'm still going to make money and I'll be able to shell, sell my shares for a higher price some point in the future. There is no perfect mining investment. Another case in point. I have two very successful, very smart friends who focus exclusively on the junior mining sector. One of them is invested in a particular company, junior miner, developer, slash explorer, has a nice resource. And, and I said, you know, the guy pays himself a million dollars a year in salary and compensation for a non-revenue generating comp company in this market, which is a tough junior mining market. He's like, yeah, I know. He's like, but you know, I think with what they have in the resource and there's not many opportunities out there in this particular commodity, I just think when the commodity runs, the investment is still going to do good. He said, I don't disagree with you. The guy pays himself way too much, but I still think I can make money on the stock. Well, I applied my unique individual judgment and said, I'm not going to touch that thing. My friend with a lot of experience says, I'm aware of that. It's something I'm looking at, but I still think I can make money in the stock. So I'm still in it. I was chatting with my other friend. He agrees with me. He's like, man, that guy pays himself way too much. And then when he had a little success with that company, we were chatting. Then he went and got himself to be an insider in a couple other companies. So he's just playing the insider junior mining game here. And then I went through the MDNA and I'm like, oh, nice. They're paying themselves hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of rent. One of the This is one of the companies he's investing in. The one that he makes a million dollars off a of salary and stock compensation a year. He's also paying using the company to pay the rent on a building he and some others own. And he's involved in other companies. And I'm sure those other companies, if I look through it in the MDNA, that those companies are also paying to rent the same building. So it's a way that these guys milk more money away from shareholders to themselves to make sure that they win no matter what. Well, my friend still believes that even though there's this flaw, kind of in your face flaw, in my opinion, that's why I'm an avoid on it. 
he still thinks he can make money with it. So there is no flawless junior mining investment, but you're going to have to apply your own unique individual judgment. The triple I sifter. And I want you to remember these three I's. Igniters, incentives, inhibitors. The triple I sifter. Igniters, incentives, inhibitors. This is what forms my sifter or my filter when I get an email or somebody requests a meeting or I'm looking at going to a conference and I'm quickly going through companies to see if I'd want to meet with them. This is the articulation of how I look at it. The igniters, what will move the stock price up? The incentives, what motivates management? The inhibitors, what will cap the share price? And this simple articulation, if you can just remember these three three things when you're sifting through, what's going to move the share price up? What motivates management? What's going to cap the share price or prevent it from moving up? The igniters, the incentives, and the inhibitors. Why the triple I sifter mnemonic? Others have spoken of the nine P's. People, property, financing, spelled with a P-H. Paper, politics, promotion, push, pitfalls, price. And that can be a helpful paradigm in articulation, a mnemonic device for investors to, to think through those different issues. And so it, it is useful. However, in terms of being a sifter, I find that if you think in terms of igniters, incentives, inhibitors, it's an easier paradigm to apply. It helps retail investors think more like insiders, and it focuses, focuses you on your relative entry point relative to these igniters that we're going to talk about and relative to where management got in. And so that's what you want to focus on early. An early stage company, this matters more. What's going to move the share price up? What are the igniters? You got to know, here's your next three things to memorize. You got to know the only three reasons why a small cap mining stock goes up. Number one, there's a commodity price rise. Number two, marketing or promotion. And number three, value recognition. Value, whether perceived or actual. And that's such an important point. Sometimes you hear shareholder, excuse me, CEOs talk about, I'm here to create shareholder value. Don't just think in those terms. You need to think about, is what is considered or spoken of as value going to be recognized by the market to where there's an influx of buyers of the stock so that the share price goes up. Because at the end of the day, you are a fractional owner of a publicly traded business. And so you want to sell that fractional ownership piece, that share of the company for more than you bought it. So you have to think in terms of value recognition. What's going to cause value recognition? So for the audio only listeners... You can't see what I have on the screen for the YouTube listeners, but I have a chart, kind of a visual representation of these three igniters, commodity price, marketing or promotion, and value recognition. So when you're sifting through a potential junior mining investment and you're analyzing these three igniters 
and where this investment opportunity, as it's being proposed to you at this very moment, you're analyzing your entry point relative to the commodity price. Has the commodity price moved? What is your downside? What is your potential upside? That's what you're asking. Marketing. How well has the company been marketed? Is the company known? What's the potential for the stock price to go up just based on marketing or promotion? Or has there already been a premium that's been built into it? Or maybe you have a management team that's been successful in the past. So all of their deals are overpriced. I know some very good management teams with great name recognition that a lot of my friends won't even touch because they say they got a good reputation, but because of the good reputation, all of their deals are overpriced. <laughs> so that's what they concluded. And so how much marketing premium, there's a lot of things you got to learn and it takes years to observe just the shady aspects of how junior mining stocks are marketed, what's effective, what's not, the different tribes that market Twitter versus chat rooms versus YouTube podcast promotion versus email promotion, the different types of investors that different types of marketing bring in. This is going to be you're adding flesh to this skeleton. It's going to be you filling in the, the grid that I'm laying out here. But I want you to think throughout your learning process about like, how am I growing in my observation of what marketing works, when it works, how it works, and what marketing doesn't in terms of junior mining stock promotion. So you're asking yourself, what's the upside in marketing? What's the downside? Value recognition. You Here's where you can start to bring in your Excel spreadsheet if you like to do that. And you could say, what value do I think is there? Actual value or perceived value? And then what's the downside and what's the upside? So with the triple I sifter, you're analyzing these three potential igniters of the stock price and you're saying, where is it at now? Because oftentimes how companies are promoted and how they're set forth, they're like, listen, this is a great deposit, high grade, high margin, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da. Compared to them, we're better. Compared to them, we're better. Compared to them, we're better. Okay, that's fine. And everything they're saying may be true. However, you're only concerned about buying the share price at one point and selling it for a higher price. So if all those things are true, does that mean there's a lot of marketing premium already built into the stock? Does that mean people have already recognized most of the value that is there? In fact, they may be valuing future success into the share price already. That's probably not one you want to put too big of a bet on if all of that is built into the stock price already. And then the commodity price, did, in addition to that, did the commodity price go up 70% in the last year? Are you sure it's going to keep running? Because if it's not, there's going to be a pullback and there's going to be a massive pullback and drawback in the stock. So that's why you're starting with the triple I sifter by saying, these are the igniters. Where is my potential entry point? How much of the commodity price can still run or fall? Marketing, how much marketing premium, if any, is in the stock? Value recognition, how much value is already recognized in the stock? 
So the ideal igniter's setup for a potential 10-bagger or outsized profits would obviously look like what I'm showing on the screen here for YouTube listeners. For audio-only listeners, I'm showing the actual commodity price at a low point, the actual marketing at a low point, the actual value recognition at a low point with the potential upside significant in all three categories. So if you find something like this, in my opinion, and I tend, again, to bet bigger on fewer companies, and that approach is not for everybody in a portfolio, but this is what I look for. Realize that the igniters are interrelated. So an increased commodity price usually results in a greater perceived value and marketing spend. An increased marketing spend can result in a greater perceived value. An increased perceived value can open up a financing window, which results in a greater marketing spend. So even as we are talking about these three different igniters, they're all interrelated to some degree. An example is an exploration company with a project next to a new discovery can receive new interest and flow of funds. And there, so in this example, because of the discovery next door, an Explorco now has a greater perceived value. What was moose pasture a week ago is now this could be the next great discovery. Perceived value. Therefore, they could have new interest, flow of funds, and a potential rising share price. The commodity price rise as the first igniter, in my opinion, you need to start here. You have to start here because even when you have good management that may have a cashed up treasury, if the commodity price is not rising or the investment community is not confident that the commodity price will at least stay where it's at, thus these, these little juniors, they just sell off and it can be brutal. And this is something external to management. For regardless of management's motives, their skills or ability, if the commodity price isn't strong or moving up, you're not going to make money likely in junior mining stocks unless it's a discovery. And with discoveries, you can do your best research, but you just never know. And the probability is so low. So you want to set yourself up with a higher probability. I do speculate in explore codes, but I'm not speculating right now beyond what I've already done. But when commodity price moves, then I tend to speculate more because the commodity price supports the share price. It supports future fundings. And then the discovery, if there is one, is rewarded more because the commodity price is moving. When it's moving in the other direction, the exact opposite. Show the, show the market a discovery and get no love and your stock sells off 8% on the discovery because people use it as a liquidity event because they're scared, they're fearful, and they want to go into cash, some of your shareholders. I've seen this happen too many times to note. This is the most important igniter to time correctly, the commodity price rise. So if you like to study macro and you want to be in this sector, try to get your edge here. Get the macro right, then find the best micro opportunity. Identify the commodity that you think is poised. And I've used these examples in previous monologues before, but I was researching vanadium before vanadium took off some years ago now. 
it was 2017 or 18, something like that. And then I had my eyes on Largo Resources, which was a vanadium company at the time. I didn't buy it, but then vanadium just flew. And then Largo went like 10x in like a year or 18 months, something like that. And so that's what you look for. You want to get the macro right and then find the best micro opportunities, get positioned. Because if you get positioned in those micro opportunities, specific company, specific small cap company that is mining or has a resource of or is exploring for that commodity that's about to go three, five X in the commodity price, man, that's where you make those quick and easy and easy is a relative term in this sector. Because you put in the hard work, those gains are the easiest. And you want the easiest gains. That's what Rick Rule, if you listen to him at all. I've been interviewing him for years, and he's all over the internet sharing a wealth of knowledge. You want those easy gains, those gains off the bottoms. After it moves, and it's 3x the commodity price, what it was 12 months ago, just be careful. There could be gains left, but the certainty of a continued parabolic move is a lot less than that move off of the bottom if you've identified it correctly. And the nice thing about the resource sector, and I know we focus a lot on gold and copper and oil on this channel and other commodities, and I focused on uh, uranium, not as much recently, but in years past as well, that there's always a commodity prime for a bull move. So gold could be in a pullback, but lithium could be doing well. Copper could be pulling back, but this year, uranium's been doing well. And sometimes the lesser followed, smaller commodities can present unique profit opportunities. And let's look at one that I didn't participate in, but many did, and that would be tin. From 2020, like the end of the first quarter, through the beginning of 2022, the tin price went 3x. So the price of tin goes threefold in two years. So you get positioned in a good tin company, Alphaman Resources Corp, AFM, on the venture in Toronto. And you look at what the share price did during that corresponding period where tin went 3x. The stock went from 13 cents and peaked out at $1.39. So there's your 10-bagger. A 10-bagger in two years. Why? Because you found a bull move that you concluded was likely to happen in a lesser-followed commodity. Tin is not copper. It's not iron ore. It's not nickel. It's not oil. It's not gold or silver. It's not as followed. But because there's always opportunity in the resource sector, you've identified it. And then you identified a company that you thought was good. And Alphaman Resources Corp goes from $0.13 cents to $1.39. Now, some would say, yeah, but that's in the DRC, man. That's a horrible jurisdiction. I know it's a geologically endowed jurisdiction. And remember how we said there's no flawless mining investment? Some people won't touch the DRC. Some people will. So, again, that's a decision you would have to make. Because I know people that would have said, yeah, Tin could go on a bull move, but I'm not going to invest in this company because it's in the DRC. I know others that did and made a ton of money. So again, that's your own individual unique judgment because there is no flawless investment. The next igniter is marketing or promotion. 
how much marketing premium is built into the share price at the time that you're sifting through. Because remember, I said the triple I sifter is better than the nine P's in my opinion, because it's getting you to think like an insider. It's because the insiders want to get in before everybody else. They want to have the cheap shares. And you have to think in terms of the same. Are you getting cheap shares? Even though you're buying on the open market, are you getting, relatively speaking, cheap shares? How much market premium is built into the share price? Insiders load up on shares before the marketing begins. You want to be thinking in terms of the same line. And maybe there's been some marketing because the role of a CEO is to share and promote and market the company. That's what they have to do. It's their job. But has there been a big campaign, an effective campaign that's really run the stock? You need to think in these terms. Are you buying before or after a major promotion? Does management even know how to promote? Are they motivated to promote? There are some jurisdictions like in Quebec where there's, quite frankly, do I say it? I've met what I would term some very lazy management teams because they have an access to capital with some of the Canadian laws and flow through funds and such to where there is an arrogancy and a laziness when it comes to promotion. That's my experience as a United States investor. That is not every management team or company in Quebec. However, that is a number of them that I've experienced. Or there's others that maybe had a big influx of funds and investment from a JV partner. They have tens of millions in the bank and they are not as motivated to promote. Or they say, well, I like to focus on rocks and desktop studies. I'm not as interested into that. You better assess that. When you're thinking about this igniter, when you're talking to management, you better do a little re YouTube research. You better get a feel for what their thoughts are regarding promotion, whether they're effective. I was at a conference years ago and I was sitting in a room and it was Exploreco after Exploreco doing a, like a 15 minute pitch slash presentation of their company. One CEO gets up there and bores you to death and he's like a scientist. And it was kind of like, I'm just going to be kind of crude and harsh here, but it was like, please give me money to fund my science project that I'm very interested in. I like looking at rocks and I need money to look at rocks more. Okay, forgive me if you think that's too hard, but you know what? Maybe he needed that feedback. And I was like, bore me to death. Then the next CEO gets up there and he presents on his company the project that he has that he wants to drill out. But he spoke to the desire to get wealth and what a discovery like this could mean. If they hit, they're this market cap with this analog that they see here with it never being drilled before, with these surface markers and these historical holes. If we hit, what this could mean for our share price and investors could be life-changing. So he spoke to the reason why I wanted to be there because ultimately I'm not a geologist. I'm not in love with rocks. I want to buy a share low and I want to sell that same share higher at some point in the future. So listening to him, his company was like an airplane taking off the runway. And it was like, I wanted to grab my luggage and run down the runway after the plane and, and get on the plane. There's stories about how investment managers and people that manage institutional funds, that there was a 24-hour rule that at any time they listened to Robert Friedland promote his company, 
You weren't allowed to buy his company <laughs> within 24 hours of listening to him promote because he was such an effective salesman and promoter. And so you had to step back from that, that buy now moment and just make sure that rationality prevailed with how you deployed cash and whether you should be in his company or not. Some guys are good at marketing. Some are not. Some come across as greasy haired, slick backs, used car salesmen. Others come across as integrity and effective and persuasive. And so you want a guy that comes across with integrity, but at the same time is persuasive at the helm of the company that you would invest in because the share price will lag. If you think you have real value, but the guy doesn't know how to articulate it and he doesn't know how to speak to why investors would invest in his company, factor that in because there could be less of it an igniter when it comes to marketing and promotion. Then what's the marketing plan? If you, if you get that from management, you should ask him like, what's the plan to share the company's story? Will these marketing efforts be effective? What type of investors or dummies will they bring into the stock? Who are they marketing to? Is there currently an online tribe, such as on Twitter, promoting the story? Or does there need to be a tribe that's going to follow and champion the story online be developed? You're going to learn by experience. You're going to learn by likely getting burned. But with this grid that I'm giving you that you're going to fill in, with this skeleton that I'm giving you that you're going to put flesh on, you want to study the various tactics and marketing and promotional uh, efforts of management and third-party marketers, see what is effective, see what's not, and you're just going to learn from your own experience. Now we're going to get to the third igniter, which is value recognition, whether it's perceived or actual. And I can't stress that enough. Say the, the share price goes up because of the, there's a discovery. Well, I can tell you companies that I've owned that have had, I thought, meaningful discoveries that it didn't go up because the particular market didn't reward it. And you could have a deposit that you could say, well, look, there's so many ounces of gold there. Yeah, but it's run by people that nobody trusts or believe can sell it or do anything with it. So the market's valuing at that deposit at, a, at a near zero. So don't just think in terms of actual value. If you're thinking like gold ounces or billions of pounds of copper, whatever it may be, those metrics, think in terms of value recognition because you're buying a fractional piece of that company, a share, and you want to sell it for more in the future. So you want that value to be reflected with more people buying that share so that the share price goes up so that you make a profit on that share. So think in terms of value recognition, more so than even the language of a CEO, value creation for shareholders. Sir, I want value recognition. I want to see the share price go up. I understand you can't control everything. However, this is what I'm looking for when I'm sifting through potential investments. I got a picture for YouTube listeners on the screen here. And it's from the kid's book, The Emperor's New Clothes. And you'll remember that there were these swindlers that came to town that said they're going to make the emperor, you know, the finest clothes and they get paid to do it. And they fake like they're making clothes at these weaver's wheels. And then they go to the emperor and say, here are your new clothes. And there's nothing in their hands. And they put the new clothes on the emperor and tell him how great he looks. And the emperor's like looking at himself. Well, I look naked. 
but they're telling me these are the finest clothes, so they must be the finest clothes. Move forward in the story. Then the emperor is in a parade walking through the town, and he doesn't have clothes on because he's wearing in his head the finest clothes that these two weavers, who are swindlers, could ever make him. And people believe into the lie, believe into the perception that he has the greatest clothes, and they're walking and they're like, wow, the greatest clothes. And it takes a little kid to say, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. He's naked. And finally, that douse of cold water against everybody's face wakes them up out of their stupor, gets them to think rationally and say, the guy is walking through the street with no clothes on. There are no clothes, even though he was sold the clothes. I give this as an example of perceived or actual. The emperor actually didn't have any clothes on. However, for a period of time, people perceived that he had valuable clothes on. This happens, especially in exploration, all the time. So you need to say, what future success or value is currently being given to this stock that could evaporate so quickly, just like when that kid yells out, the emperor doesn't have clothes on, and everybody's like, you're right, he doesn't. Then everybody sells the share price. This is why I want you to think in these terms of value recognition and perceived or actual. What is valuable is debatable and arbitrary. Is the value perceived or actual? I'm going to say it again and again. Remember, you got the triple I sifter, you got igniters, incentives, which we haven't gotten to yet, and inhibitors, which will keep the stock from rising. Of the igniters, you're next going to memorize that the three things that make the stock price go up are a commodity price rise, marketing or promotion, and value recognition. And in your mind, you're going to be saying to yourself, this is perceived value or actual value. You have to come to your own conclusion regarding that. And it, when it's perceived value and there's future success built in or something's being valued that you don't think is really valuable, that's when you keep close tabs over that stock. And, and you you have your finger on the sell if you need it. Because when things turn, it can turn violently. Will this value be recognized and by who? If you got a deposit, who's going to be the buyer? Is retail going to like this story to cause the share price go up? So think in terms, I'm repeating it for a reason. Think in terms of value recognition more so than value creation, the language of a CEO. Effective marketing can get you to overpay for the emperor's new clothes. Bad management or a poor jurisdiction will negate an otherwise valuable deposit. Do you remember Newfoundland or Newfoundland? In 2021, forgive my English pronunciation for my Canadian friends, but do you remember the neurology hotness that occurred when Newfound Gold had their discovery in Newfoundland and just anything that was in Newfoundland went crazy? And then the same thing with lithium uh, for the in the last year. Anything with a lithium name or was exploring for lithium was hot because of the commodity price and the perceived increased demand for lithium. So there's more value because it's hot, more perceived value. There's more perceived value because there's a discovery nearby or it's a hot sector or it's a hot jurisdiction. So keep tabs on all these things. 
Now we're going to move on to the next eye of the triple eye sifter. Incentives. What motivates management? Is their compensation reasonable? Are they worth it? How much shareholder value have they created relative to what they've been paid over the years? That's that's a metric I find myself looking at more and even asking. It's like, okay, you've been the CEO for 12 years. How much have you been paid? And I've had CEOs to where I've asked them, how much do you pay yourself on a Zoom call? And then they said, well, that's that's in the public domain. You know, you can look that up if you want to know. And I was like, really? I took the time out of my day to have this call that you're a public CEO of a public company. You shouldn't be offended nor hiding the fact how much you make and make me look into the MDNA. You know what a turnoff that is to an investor when you say, oh, just look it up yourself. When that investor took the time to talk to you, tell me how much you make. I make $175,000 Canadian a year. I'm incentivized with these options. I also have these restricted share units. Just lay it out. How much have you made over the last decade? Well, I don't know for sure, but probably I've made about $2.5 million. Okay. How much money have you put into the company thus far? I've put into the company about $400,000. Okay. So this entity, this gig has made you 2 million bucks over the last decade. I don't consider that skin in the game. I'm asking myself what motivates management. Meaningful skin in the game to me is substantial cash at risk relative to their net worth. I also give management credit if they've done value-adding sweat equity that they've contributed to the company or the project or to get things to where they need to go. And, you know, it's rude. You don't ask somebody what's your net worth, right? But a million, I've had calls with CEOs to where they told me they're like, Bill, I put a million dollars of my own money in this company. And to be honest, that's my entire retirement account. So if I fail at this, I'm not going to have retirement. And this particular CEO even contrasted that. He's like, you look at other guys that got cheap shares and they had some success. So they're worth 40 million bucks. They put a million dollars into a company and brag about it, but it's meaningless to them. Not to me. (laughs) Relative to my net worth, this means a lot. And maybe they haven't struck it big yet. And this is the first company that they're at the helm of. And they're working their rear end off. They're working all their contacts. They're working 18-hour days. And I don't care if they get cheap shares. If they're via their sweat equity, they're adding value to this venture endeavor. That's how I look at it. I I want people to make money. I just don't want them to make money at my expense. I want them to make me money as they make money. That's what we're looking for. We're seeing if the incentives are lined up, if if they're motivated to make me wealthy. I've shared this story over previous years. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that haven't heard it before, but former sponsor, Osino Resources, and the founder and CEO, Hayadan, we were chatting, could have been six years ago at this point, or something like that, five years ago, something, and I invested in that company at 30 cents with a... 50 cent half warrant, and then the share price ran up to a buck 60 or something like that. And then the takeover deal was announced a month or two ago at this point for like a buck 50 Canadian. So that was a, that was a solid exploration company win uh, for me. 
And we were chatting once at a conference and he said, Bill, I bring all my friends into these deals that I'm in. I bring my family and their money into these deals. And the thing he hates the most is the thought of that he'd bring their money in and they wouldn't get it back or they wouldn't make money off of his deal. And he even referenced that in kind of like the exit interview that David Erfley and I did with him after they announced uh, the sale of Osino or the potential sale of Osino. And he also said to me at that time, Bill, I love making people wealthy. One of my motivating factors is to have my investors get rich off of my deals, have the people I bring into these deals, these venture deals, make money. I'm telling you, that that is the motivation that you want to look for. And you can you can disagree with this or that, or they should have done this, or they should have done that. You know, those things are always going to be able to be debative. However, that's the motivation or that's the heart that you want to look for because there are a lot of guys out there and a lot of you listening know who they are. And you can point to concrete things to where they put themselves first above shareholders. And a lot of these guys, it's almost like it's psychopathic. I don't know. Maybe that's too hard, but they'll still show themselves at all these conferences and I had one friend pointed out, he's like, man, that guy did that. He just gave the shaft to all those shareholders. And Bill, six months later, he was at the conference walking around with no shame whatsoever. And my friend's like, man, is that like a psychopath? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, I'd be, I'd be afraid to share, show my face if I did to shareholders what, what he did. But apparently there's no shame. You contrast that with someone like Haya that says, I'm in this to make people money. That's really what you want. And people will articulate that. Management will articulate it. But do they really mean it? And I can't read people's hearts fully. But you try to get a sense as best you can with the discernment that you've been, that you've developed over your lifespan. And then you look at their track record because their track record is going to speak the loudest. Now, if you're going with a startup guy, there, there might not be the track record to look at. That person could be motivated to make their first big win, and that could be in your favor. Some people, they just, they're in it for legacy or, or ego, especially if they've already had a big win. What are they still in it for? I try to assess that. And you want to invest in highly ambitious and competent management teams that have a lot riding on the deal that you're investing in. Because a, a lot of these guys, set themselves up in a bunch of different companies and they get the cheap shares and they're going to then focus on whatever one takes off. So if you're investing and say, I got this name, I'm investing in this name, this well-known guy who had success here or there. And then you got to look at the fact that, Hey, he's in eight other companies, bro. Like if one of those takes off the company you invested in with his name, it might become insignificant to him and he'll leave it behind. And, I could name drop and mention someone to you that I talked to after I invested in the company. And I knew the person I was talking to was friends with and had invested in this particular investor. And I said, I just put this amount of money in this small junior company with your friend. And what do you think? And the guy said, he said, 
if he actually focuses on that company, he could be of use to it. But your biggest risk, if you're counting on his name, is that he pays no attention to that company and he only allows his name to be used because it could be one of several companies that he's going to make money off of over the next three years. Okay? That's the way it is. But you want to invest in highly ambitious, competent management teams that have a lot riding on the deal you're invested in. Do they even care about their reputation if they lose everybody's money and bankrupt the company, run it into the ground? This this psychopath I told you about, he didn't care. Like avoid, avoid, avoid when it's somebody like that. You got to think in terms of inhibitors. The third eye of the triple I sifter, what's going to cap the share price? We've been talking about what'll make the share price go up, the igniters, We've been talking about what motivates management, the incentives, and now we're going to talk about the inhibitors, what's going to cap the share price or prevent it from going up. Obviously, a bloated share structure, my Aussie friends might disagree with me a little, but generally speaking, if there's too many shares out in too many hands, it's harder, and it's not a tight share structure, it's harder to get that share price to run. There could be too many warrants out from private placements or convertible debentures or um, options from management or options to consultants. You should know the exercise price points and expiration dates. If you're going to, when you do this analysis of the inhibitors and if you've gone through, you're at this third eye of the three eyes as you're sifting through a potential mining investment, then you want to spend a little more time on this for the executives. And I know that there's executives that listen to this show and people in the industry. I respect you and your presentation more, even if I don't invest when you give me, these are the warrants out. These are the options out. These are the price points. This is the expiration dates. When you do that work for me, like mucho, mucho respect. That is, that is a gift to investors and at least the intelligent investor and the sophisticated investor is going to appreciate and respect you more for it. And honestly, the dumb retail is not going to know the difference anyway. So you might as well just put it in your presentation. But that can take a lot of time or to kind of figure out. But you got to know where those points are because if people have shares from warrants, excuse me, shares from private placements that also came with a warrant, they are going to sell those shares and then exercise their warrants, which means at the warrant exercise price point and towards those dates, there's going to be a lot of downward pressure in the share price. So you got to be aware of that. They got shares in loose hands with fickle and unsophisticated retail investors. You could get a flood. There could be eager sellers like previous bag holders from a past run up in the share price. This is where technical analysis comes in place because as my friend Nick Santiago has taught me, you know, the share price is just indicative of human behavior and psychology. So if they bought at a certain point at a peak, when the share price reached that, you're going to get an influx of sellers. So you want to think about these things. You want to know if there's been any recent private placement financings, because in Canada, a lot of these financings, not all now, some of them are free trading immediately, but most of them have a four-month hold. So you want to know when that four-month hold comes off. And in the week before that four-month hold, you're going to see a lot of selling pressure as the investors in the private placement begin to short the stock to lock in their profits if there is profits to be taken. 
And in my opinion, I'll just say this without naming names, you will learn to avoid stocks with certain financiers or banks. And there's positions that if I hold it and a certain financier or bank gets involved in the stock, I'm just going to sell and I'm going to walk away. And you have to determine that for yourself. Just by observation, you'll determine the names that you like, the names that you don't like. I've also seen institutions or funds that might have to sell unrelentingly. Now, when you're looking at your entry point, you don't necessarily know this in advance, but you can ask the CEO and say, hey, are there any funds or institutions that own your share that might need to sell over the next six months? That's a question you could ask and hope they're honest with you because I've invested with good CEOs that had technical success in which the markets got challenging and then funds and institutions had redemptions and they were forced to sell. And when they sell, they're indiscriminate, they are unrelenting and it puts a huge cap and downward pressure on the share price and can cut a market cap in half, make it more difficult for the CEO, make it more difficult to finance, scares out retail and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy on the way down. You also got to pay attention to cheap shares and when the escrow releases. So if there's been some cheap founder shares and this company's been public for some years and maybe there's new management, I'm giving you an example that I've actually experienced myself, then I've seen an explorer share price destroyed when the previous CEO, exec, lead executive, who was also a founder, relentlessly unloads his cheap shares. And I mean, pound the bid, pound the bid, pound the bid, pound the bid. Finally, I had it explained to me, Bill, I'm sorry, I have no control over this guy. He's got his cheap shares out of escrow and he's relentlessly pounding the bid and he doesn't care the damage that he's doing to the company. So I'm just giving you some ideas to thought, think about some inhibitors. There's more than what's on this list in front of you if you're watching on YouTube. Bad management, that's not believable due to their past failure and missed timelines. That's an inhibitor. They lay out guidance. They lay out the forward-looking statement, but nobody believes them because they've cried wolf or they haven't been able to hit only any of their self-imposed goals. So that is a huge inhibitor, or maybe it's a bad reputation of a given deposit or a particular mining jurisdiction. You want to be aware of that. Those are huge inhibitors. And remember, the triple I sifter, this is, this is the initial filter that you're going to apply. After it gets through this filter, we don't cover everything here, but after it gets through this filter, then you're going to do your deeper analysis. Remember SAD? Sift, analyze in depth if it gets through the sifter, and then deploy money according to the opportunity that you've assessed after you've done your deeper due diligence and analysis. The triple I sifter, igniters, incentives, inhibitors. This is your paradigm. This is the skeleton that you're going to add flesh to, and of the igniters, you need to remember that the three igniters are the commodity price rise, marketing or promotion, and value recognition. And you're asking yourself, is the quote-unquote value, which is debatable and arbitrary, is it perceived or actual in your opinion? We're looking at igniters, incentives, and inhibitors. My final thoughts... Again, the triple I sifter, it's a skeleton. You're going to add flesh to. You're still going to have to do the deep work. If you want to learn how to fish and not just be given a fish, you're going to have to add flesh to this paradigm. And maybe you find that this paradigm doesn't work for you. 
And that's fine too, because it's your money. So it's your decision. But get to your nose quickly using this sifter if you decide to use it. But if a possible investment makes it through your sifter, that that time, spend the extra time on due diligence. But prior to that, don't waste your time. Remember, junior mining stocks are the best sector to make 10x or one-tenth your money. You have to remember that. It could work for you or against you. You rent, not buy junior mining stocks. You date, not marry junior mining stocks. They are cyclical. Don't invest unless you believe that you found a competitive advantage for yourself. I hope the triple I sifter that I've laid out here, the three I's, igniters, incentives, inhibitors, is something that you can use. And I wish you the best. It's a fun sector. It's also agonizing. But you can make a lot of money. You can lose a lot of money. This is what I've used to get to where I am. This is my articulation of my current thought process and how I approach this sector. I appreciate your listenership. This is Bill Powers signing off. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks, too. I just started to study up on mining stocks, and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector, and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.